From the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, this is Digital Campus, a bi-weekly discussion of how digital media and technology are affecting learning, teaching, and scholarship at colleges, universities, libraries, and museums. This is Digital Canvas, episode 116, the last episode ever about that Google Books case. Or is it? Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Digital Campus. Uh, this is episode number 116 on uh, October 16th, 2015, a date that will live in infamy as yet another date in the Google Books case, which has been going on for a long time. But we'll get to that. We'll get to talking about that. Um, there's only three of us here today. Uh, I am Amanda French. I am Director of Digital Research Services at Virginia Tech Libraries. And uh, we are joined by Dan Cohen. Hello, Dan. Hey there, Amanda. Dan, of course, is Executive Director of the Digital Public Library of America. And we are also joined by Stephen Robertson. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Amanda. And Stephen is executive director of the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. Um, so let's get right into it. Uh, it was announced today to the general rejoicing of the glam and higher education portion of the internet um, that there has been yet another decision in the long-running Google Books case of Authors Guild versus Google Inc. Um, and this case, I should look this up, I can't remember whether it started in 2004 or 2005, uh, pretty much directly after uh, Google began, began its great books scanning project um, to scan books uh, in academic libraries. Um, the Authors Guild promptly said, no, no, um, this is a violation of copyright law. And uh, publishers joined with the Authors Guild. There have been little side cases uh, bringing Hati Trust into it. Hathi Trust, of course, the big repository uh, that libraries got of copies of the scans that Google made uh, from this scanning. And the big, the big news today is that the United States Court of Appeals has uh, ruled in favor of Google, um, arguing, in fact, that um, scanning of full text use for the purpose of indexing them and making uh, information available to the world in the way that Google Books does is fair use. Uh, Dan, we've been talking about this case for a long time on Digital Campus. Um, were you surprised by this decision? Well, I suppose I'm not surprised. I mean, and, and by the way, I think we have literally been talking about this case for the eight years that this podcast has been going yeah. on, uh, eight and a half years. Um, you know, this is a 10-year-old case. Uh, in fact, I was looking at my blog uh, this afternoon and uh, just after the, the ruling came out, and one of the very first blog posts I wrote on my blog, which started in 2005, was in fact about this lawsuit. Um, so it has been 
a very, very long road. Um, there have been lots of appeals. And just to be clear, I suppose there's one more appeal they could make since this is the second uh, circuit. Um, they can appeal it to the Supreme Court, which uh, as we speak, it looks like the Authors Guild is going to do, although lawyers are saying that it's very unlikely that the Supreme Court will take up this case since there's really not conflicting rulings by the lower court. So we very well may be 10 years later uh, at the end of the road here. And um, back to your question, I guess I am not surprised in that um, everything that led to this point in the lower courts was really in Google's favor. Um, it was, uh, you know, pretty clear from uh, Judge uh, Denny Chin's um, earlier rulings um, uh, that um, there were clear transformative uses, especially to the snippet view, and um, frankly, uh, some of the things that our community here for digital campus is interested in uh, n-grams and um, you know all kinds of new transformative uses of the combined uh, text, I guess, the corpus of books that were scanned by Google. All of those things seemed very transformative to the courts all along. And um, while I think the Authors Guild was surprised that the court didn't take the fact of Google being a giant corporation more seriously, um, really in this ruling, if you look at it, they say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, commercial entities uh, just because you're a commercial entity doesn't mean that you infringe in all cases. Uh, there are, in fact, four factors um, to fair use, and uh, they weighed them all as the law, in fact, uh, instructs, and came to the conclusion that, on balance, this was a fair use. It was transformative. Um, it didn't affect the market for these older books that were scanned, um, and uh, it, it really... Uh, it wasn't irrelevant that Google is a giant uh, billion-dollar corporation, but uh, it was factored in as one of uh, multiple factors and uh, came to that conclusion. So I think there were a lot of, a lot of hints uh, leading up to this. Certainly, uh, the other big case that that uh, preceded this, the Authors Guild against Hathi Trust, um, uh, which in which the Authors Guild sued the libraries that were part of the Google scanning project um, and lost. Um, that was also. Um, really, again, a very strong hint that the ruling would not go the Authors Guild way. So we're here. Um, I, I'm still, it, i, I got to say, it's been so long that in some ways it still is fairly shocking that we've sort of reached this point, and it does feel, in a sense, like a conclusion. And I think most gratifyingly, um, it really just uh, focused again on what copyright law is for. The um, judge who uh, wrote the ruling made it very clear that... Uh, the panel sees uh, copyright as being for the um, progress of society as a whole, um, that authors are important, they should be compensated, but the copyright law is bigger than just authors. It really is about a, a, a way of making sure that we have access to um, materials uh, as shared culture, um, and the judge really emphasized that. And the judge, uh, as well in the ruling, um, I think had some wonderful language about uh, the importance of fair use, and I think this ruling will strengthen fair use and make it more muscular in a way that I think is incredibly helpful to everyone who's listening to this podcast. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I actually remember that uh, in some of the earlier discussions we had had about this case, you know, for a while it looked like it was going to be settled, right? And then the judges rejected the settlement. And, uh, you know, a general point often made at that point in the long history of this case was that it would be a real shame if it were settled 
because it wouldn't settle that question of whether scanning full, the full text of books, making full copies of books for the purpose of creating a digital index of them, is in fact fair use. So um, you know, this is this is great, as you pointed out, Dan, on that head. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when that settlement came up, um, were, were were in fact worried about that fact, uh, and I think we now have. Um, because of the fact that the settlement was rejected, um, we now have a set of case law. And uh, a bunch of the lawyers that I know who have studied this very carefully, I mean, they think this is a, a landmark ruling. Um, they, they were very clear that they thought this is a ruling that will be in law text, um, that will uh, be a ruling that will explain fair use extremely well to law students and future lawyers and judges. Um, so this was a pretty big deal. Uh, because fair use, um, as great as it is in the abstract, um, it is pretty amorphous. And I think everyone um, you know, in the academy and well beyond, um, in places like uh, Digital Public Library of America, um, it, it's always a little bit unsure, right? Because the only way to really be sure that you're using something fairly is, I suppose, to be sued and to be litigated all the way to the end, like in this case. And so I suppose... Um, you know, we should be grateful that it was a litigated, albeit in an extremely painful uh, way, but it does at least give us, again, uh, firmer boundaries um, to operate within. So, Stephen, um, you know, back when this case was first instantiated, you were, um, I'm guessing, uh, down under mm -hmm. in uh, Australia or New Zealand. Were you following this case down there then? And uh, if so, uh, uh, what are your feelings about it today? Um, I have to admit that I wasn't following it as closely. It still seemed at a significant distance, not the geographical ones, but from what I was thinking about um, at the time. But I mean, I think that's something about the just the, the long history of this case. It's it's the the issues it raises have moved from you know the implications. I think certainly to me back then weren't as clear as they became over the course of the case. Um, and and so it's become a more central issue. And, and you know, I mean, I, I, I can't do a better job than Dan did, I think, of, of kind of summing up what's going on here. But, you know, I've been teaching Dudge Chin's decision to students for a while since it came out. Oh. And it is a much more concrete kind of explanation of what fair use looks like than, you know, than anything else that was out there before. And I think in, in that way alone, it's become a lot more relevant and a lot more relevant for, you know, people across our community because it's more and more... A, you know, at the forefront of, of what we do. I can't teach a course to undergraduates without, you know, them having to grapple with what they can or can't use um, in any given project now that we're, have, you know, we're working in public and online. And so I think that's, you know, for me, that really just, you know, trying to think back, you know, my introduction to this case came through this podcast. And, you know, it might have, if the podcast has been talking about this or its whole existence, you know, I've, I've, most of what I know about the case for a long time came through this podcast, but but I really am just struck by the fact that it is a statement of things that that I'm thinking now much more broadly recognised as central to what we do, and even in some ways this case almost seems like a, you know, I, I don't have the kind of, you know, at some level sense of excitement that Judge Chin's ruling produced because to some extent, legal process notwithstanding, that that was the breakthrough ruling, I think, thinking across the mm -hmm. whole story. And the, this confirms that I think this is stronger. Um, you know, this decision wants to talk about things being highly transformative, not just transformative. But I think in some ways that's also a reflection of the, of the way that this kind of... Um, work has moved to the center of what we do. And so, so 
I mean, just looking at all of the headlines and the way that this has been summarised, you know, this is all about, you know, digitising force, force search as fair use. Um, and, I, and I've just been trying to think about what that's going to mean to people who haven't been following the case very closely. But search remains one of the things that people you know, deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And if that's their way of beginning to think about what fair use is, I think even that itself is an additional and, and powerful way of putting this um, in front of people and making it intelligible to people. And, you know, the continuing endorsement of things like text mining and and data mining as transformative uses I think is going to be increasingly important going forward not just for Google Books but for our ability to work with you know the disturbingly large amount of material that that isn't in the public domain um, that is going to be central to the kinds of projects that people want to do so so you know it's just you know, it's a little overdue and maybe a little bit anticlimactic, but it's another even stronger statement of, as Dan said, of, of, the, of the things that matter, a, a clarity about what fair use is in terms that matter in this kind of digital moment that I think is going to, going to give people the opportunity to really, to really push forward with what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. Yes, who would have thought that we as humanities scholars would have had to or would have wanted to follow some kind of, you know, legal case to do with a technology company, you know, and that it would be so relevant to what we do in this this era. And yet, it it really is. It really is a landmark, I think. Um, and yeah, there's there's a great deal of. Um, it's an interesting point you make, Stephen, about uh, the Chin decision, uh, because as I remember, the language of that was really uh, stirring mm -hmm. and beautifully written. And this is a bit more. A bit more neutral, a bit more legalistic, you know, uh, as best as I can tell. But it does, you know, it does specifically mention uh, what is sometimes called non-consumptive use. Um, you know, what is essentially text mining. Um, I kind of liked that the example it gave was uh, sort of U.S. centric. Um, the district court gave an example tracking the frequency of references to the United States as a single entity, the United States is, versus references to the United States in the plural, the United States are, and how that usage has changed over time. <laughs> so you can see where they're thinking, oh, well, that's, that's a really valid and, uh, um, you know, use of, of this kind of corpus and uh, is, is a public good. And I will say that that's something that I find really heartening about uh, this decision and also about the Denny Chin decision. It become it's it can it feels increasingly rare to me sometimes to find entities that really are devoted to the public good and are are doing a good job of sort of looking out for the public good. But decisions like this, um, you know, they say, look, Google is a for-profit company. There's no doubt about that. But it's also really true that this project, this scanning project, and making those books available online was extremely good for the public, and that you know no sort of property rights of the author, you know, shouldn't be allowed to, to overrule that, that public good. So I really liked, liked that aspect of it. Um, I'll just mention, yeah. oh, go ahead, Dan. Oh, sorry, Amanda, I was just going to say, you know, um, that uh, there are probably listeners to the podcast who, in a sense, contributed to this win mm. for fair use because, um, for instance, Matt Jockers and, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, his text mining group and many co-signers, um, uh, you know, people who have worked on, for instance, uh, digging into data um, projects, uh, the NEH-funded uh, digging into data program. Um, there were uh, friends of the court uh, filings um, that brought up, you know, raised a lot of these things like the use of United States of America. So, um, and it's pretty clear um, in the footnotes here that those um, messages came through, that there, in fact, were 
uh, uses. Um, and after all, what the Authors Guild was arguing here was that the act of copying it alone, forgetting even to the point, forget about getting to the point of using engrams or anything like that. Their, their point was that just the mere act of copying it um, and, uh, in fact, giving a copy to the libraries, giving a copy to University of Michigan, that act alone was um, infringing. And um, really what the court said was, uh, wait a second, we, we need to look at the end uses. We can't just look about the, at the process of copying um, alone in isolation because that was necessary to get to the point where you would, in fact, have an, an engram corpus and have um, these kinds of, of capabilities. So I, I think that that um, sort of 360-degree view, um, which really was influenced, I believe, by uh, scholars and uh, researchers, um, I think it made a difference, a uh, big difference. So, yeah, I mean, you know, when we're talking about funding for the NEH, you know, this is the thing we could point to. You know, the U.S. courts have ruled that this is interesting and valuable research, you know, that, that digital humanists are doing in a way. Um, I'll just mention one other little uh, just thing that I noticed just because uh, from my perspective as an institutional repository manager, um, I thought uh, it was kind of interesting um, let me see if I can quote the exact language here. Um, uh, so as a, as a repository manager and as somebody who's sort of participating in a project called SHARE, which is called Shared Access to Research, which is a sort of an institutional repository version of the DPLA. It's a project that's attempting to sort of aggregate a lot of the open access scholarship that's stored in institutional repositories. Um, you know, as part of that, we've been discovering that a lot of people are um, concerned about... Um, the, the property rights around metadata. So in particular, um, abstracts, which are um, you know, short descriptions of pieces of research and who owns those? Do publishers own those? You know, are they copyrightable? Are they long enough to be copyrightable? And again, we don't really have a lot of case law around that. So most people agree, you know, like, well, title, author, that kind of thing. Um, information about a work is factual information. It is not subject to copyright. Uh, but there are a few um, keywords are the other things that people are kind of worrying about. Uh, keywords and abstracts are those merely descriptive, you know, pieces of information. But um, but I thought there was a line in here um, early on in the decision that said, um, "An author's derivative rights do not include an exclusive right to supply information of the sort provided by Google about her works." So I thought that was kind of interesting too. You know that. Arguably, an abstract is sort of information about a work. It is not the full yeah. text of the work itself. Um, so, you know, maybe a, a bit of a reach for me, but sort of resonant with some things I've been thinking about. All right, any well, other comments? Yeah, I, I just think that um, in some sense, uh, we're going to have calmer seas ahead. I mean, I, I think that um, a, a lot of folks in the academy, a lot of folks in libraries, um, to be honest, we've been doing digitization, we've been building institutional repositories, we've been doing all these things that um, really bump up against copyright law and questions of fair use. And, um, you know, any ruling like this really, I think, again, helps to calm the seas because um, university general councils, for instance, tend to be pretty risk-averse, <laughs> pretty risk-averse in my experience. Uh, and um, having something that that is, frankly, this solid, um, you know, this ruling doesn't mean you can go ahead and digitize uh, books from last year and put them up on your website. There's, no, there's nothing like 
like that in the ruling, but it, it does make a little bit more firm the, the terrain that we stand on and um, gives us a bit of a hint of what we can do. And I think particularly for nonprofits, um, you know, we've already got one of those four factors um, uh, sewn up in that we really are trying to help the public and, and do what copyright law intended to do and have these things for educational and research purposes. Um, and so I, I am hopeful that there will be additional uh, digital uses and uh, ways of, of aggregating and bringing things together um, that this ruling will enable. And I think that's just a, a big plus. Yeah. A red letter day in digital humanities and copyright law for sure. So we have uh, just a couple of other stories to talk about. Um, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about, it's, it's sort of breaking news again today, like the Google Books case uh, ruling, um, about a, a new online tool that they are launching today uh, at North Carolina State University. It's called Big Diva. And uh, you know I haven't been following everything about this tool, um, but I'll read a little bit from the press release that NC State um, issued. Um, First of all, like uh, kudos on the name there. You know, so, not bad. Big diva. Is it a little? Is it a little? Sizes? Sexist? I don't know. I may not own the searches. <laughs> you, could, you could make an argument that there's something about the fat lady singing. I don't know, but it, it stands. Yeah. At the Center for History and New Media, we always had, you know, like Zotero, which is this uh, obscure Albanian word. And uh, I don't know, here's uh, someone going a different direction. Oh, Mecca, yeah. So, well, yeah. we're going to talk about Tropy later, so we can talk yep. about that name. But so Big Diva stands for Big Data Infrastructure Visualization Application. And according to the press release, it offers a visual interface for navigating scholarly, peer reviewed humanities content historical documents, images of art and artifacts, and any scholarship associated with those things. Um, so I haven't, um, there is a, apparently a beta of this tool. I haven't gotten to play with it, but there are some very pretty screenshots uh, in this NC State uh, announcement. Now this is a partnership between uh, North Carolina State University Digital Humanities Scholars, Tim Stinson, who was a Clear Fellow at one point, and uh, uh, researchers in the library, uh, developers in the library. Uh, at NC State, and Laura Mandel down at Texas A&M, um, sort of based on a, uh, an idea that she had. So I think this is, you know, I mean, if you, you can think of it in a way as just a sort of a scholarly database, there are a number of tools that do this um, that offer uh, access to both primary sources and scholarship about those um, sources. But I, what this is um, primarily going to do is offer, you know, sort of built-in visualizations um, to those works. Um, but one of the interesting things about this as well, um, it could be just another sort of digital humanities tool, another, um, another project launched. Um, but I found it interesting that this announcement um, explicitly said, uh, according to Tim Stinson, our plan is to market Big Diva as a subscription-based service to libraries and the higher education community. So that this is being explicitly launched as um, maybe for-profit is the wrong word, but at least a cost recovery um, product that will be purchasable uh, by libraries and higher education units. Um, thoughts about this? 
Well, I, you know, the sustainability piece, um, I, first of all, I'd like to play around with this tool. It sounds interesting. Um, you know, sustainability is tough. Um, I, you know, we always had to deal with this for center projects. And, um, you know, there's, there's always going to be unhappiness because usually uh, sustainability involves creating scarcity or artificial scarcity and leveraging that. Um, but um, I don't know. I'm curious of what the two of you think of this. I got to, I mean, yeah, I mean, I always, my gut reaction is, is that I don't tend to like this at, at all. Um, and But it's hard to work out really what's going on here. I mean, it's a press release. There's one line in it that says that it's going to be a subscription-based service without any rationale for that. Um, and it doesn't seem to be, based on the press releases, a project that's been, I mean, there's no fund accredited in the press release. Yeah, you know, I was looking at that too. I was like, was this grant funded? They actually have a really strong developer group um, at the library in particular, so I think a lot of this was just sort of homegrown. Yeah, I mean, it looks like, yeah, it's a proof of concept built at North Carolina and then built out at Texas A&M. So in that sense, mm -hmm. you know, there's even more kind of sustainability pressure here if this is, is not a funded project. And I guess the, the other real rationale here would be that the intention is for this to integrate with, um, you know, commercial journals um, and that some of its usefulness requires being able to access academic journals in a way that, you know, is only going to be possible in conjunction with libraries. So therefore, as a, as a kind of subscription-based service for libraries, maybe that model model makes sense. But, but uh, yeah, it's, there's an interesting kind of lack of, of, of rationale for for doing that, um, I mean, you know, this is not being, this is being built by, you know, by digital humanities folk, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, and in that, so in that sense, they are, are taking a different kind of path, but if there's no money behind it already, you know, maybe this is a, a necessary part of it, of, of it going forward, but, you know, I, you know, I'm constantly butting up against the amount of material that is that is being sucked into into gated subscription-based um, places, and, and you know, I don't, you know, I think that there that's becoming a more and more serious problem for people, um, and that always introduces the sense that as 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 great as this might be, you know. I have to say that odds are that, that George Mason probably is not going to be able to afford it along with a lot of similar kind of peer um, institutions and it becomes another one of those kinds of things that falls one side or another of that divide. So it, it would be interesting to know more. I mean, it's still a relatively unconventional decision to do this and I'm sure that they haven't done it lightly, um, but I'd certainly like to hear a little bit more about, about what the rationale for doing it is and, and you know where the price point for this is as a... Um, subscription-based service and it's not quite the same you know, the, the I guess you know my my go-to example for this tends to be the woman in social movement site which ended up at Alexander Press and, and that was kind of the other way around they ended up there because they had something that they were kind of struggling to sustain and they and they needed to look for ways to sort of sort of keep it going to sort of to sort of launch as subscription-based is, is, is something a little bit different again so it, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's you know it's certainly not the way I would prefer to see it done. Um, but I think we all are aware of the challenge of of sustaining projects um, going forward, and let alone getting funding to start a project up. And so, um, in that context, it is you know there, there there has to be some space, I guess, to think about this. But yeah, I, I'd like to know more. 
Well, I'll, I'll say again, I'm, I'm working mainly. This, there is actually a website for this now, I'm just discovering. It's at bigdiva.org, which is essentially, I guess, the, the product itself, the live beta project. And again, I'm, I'm going mostly from the, the um, press release. But they do say that the con it's, a, it's essentially a search engine, but that the content is curated. So I can see where, you know, if it's not just a tool that they're, quote unquote, selling or releasing, but that they, you know, really have a, an idea in mind for human curation, that obviously takes money, you know, the, the paying, well, it doesn't obviously take money, you could crowdsource it or something like that, but um, it's easiest just to, to pay people to do that kind of thing. So perhaps that's part of the rationale. Um, yeah, yeah, I think they're going to have some issues in that. I'm, so now I'm playing around with it as well. Um, uh, in that, you know, there are similar kinds of visualization tools, and some of those are, um, you know, open source. So um, maybe a little tricky. Um, I yeah. do not wish them ill will, but uh, you know, I, I always hope with projects like this that you can have at least um, some kind of freemium model. So you know, some some free version and then some additional services that really make sense if you're incurring server costs or things like that. Um, uh, you know, but the center, for instance, Otero, which I mentioned earlier, um, is completely free. It's it's open source, and then there are certain cases where people, for instance, want to. Um, supported by paying for storage, which obviously is a cost, a real cost, and uh, so there are ways of sort of having some pieces of it uh, be paid for um, that can support the whole. Um, but you know, these things are always—they're very, very tricky. Yeah, and, uh, and I will say that you know, I—I'm—I can't think actually. I'm sure there there may be some, but I can't think of another project that did launch <laughs> with the stated intention of of becoming a subscription-based service. So at the very least, it's uh, a useful experiment in that, um, you know, because I think that the far, far, far more common um, example is that something gets grant funding and then isn't sustainable once the money runs out. So, um, you know, it's, it, working at Virginia Tech has given me a real um, sort of perspective on this because they, you know, most un universities are very interested in technology transfer, you know, um, getting the university you know, patent income and so on from from research and, and finding ways, you know, for researchers themselves to monetize uh, products of their research or software or so on. But there's a there's a huge emphasis on that here at Virginia Tech, you know, to the point where almost all of the intellectual property services and uh, policies that are published are about that, are about like how to create intellectual property from your research when in fact I keep looking for and not finding how do I open source the things that, uh, you know, the products right. of my resource, you know, and they just don't seem to even have that as a concept. So, you know, so. I, I'll bet you that was exacerbated this week because um, of the win by the uh, um, WARF, the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, which um, it does exactly that for Wisconsin. So research that comes out of University of Wisconsin um, that gets patented, um, yeah, or otherwise commercialized. Um, so Wharf acts as a kind of uh, holding organization, and they in fact sue people, and they sued Apple for a mm. pretty obscure patent, um, and won uh, with potential damages of something like three quarters of a billion dollars. Holy uh, Moses! And, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are like 
provosts across the nation and around the world who are like, how can we get our own wharf? And uh, what is Amanda doing that we can encode into a patent and then uh, yeah. you know, sue someone over? So um, it's big money, but it's, you know, this is like lottery ticket world. And uh, I just don't think that you can rely on it. Yeah. I missed that case, Dan. That's really interesting. I'll put a link to um, that in the, the show notes. Yeah, it's very unusual. So it's a it's a, actually an independent nonprofit, and they tech transfer, which exists at you know almost all universities, which really does exist, in fact, to essentially monetize or, or get out into the commercial realm uh, uh, things that start off as pure research or basic research in the university. So Wisconsin actually has this thing, WARF. It's a it's an acronym, um, and uh, they push things out into Wharf and then Wharf then goes out and there have been companies that have come out of um, Wharf held intellectual property but they also in fact do sue, I mean they're pretty litigious and mm -hmm. they will go after uh, companies that, that uh, they feel are infringing on those uh, IP rights. So um, I, I don't know the total dollar amount that they've been able to sort of extract from that process but uh, it's one of the more serious uh, tech transfer efforts um, in in the United States. Hmm. Interesting. Well, a final story that uh, we had thought we might talk about would be just uh, some updates uh, from the Center for History and New Media. Um, Stephen, you guys have um, some some news, don't you? Well, we do. Um, we we are very excited to um, start work on a project that's called Tropy, which is an, you know, an English word, I guess. So therefore, not in the true tradition of centre names. Um, the credit for which the name for which credit for the name goes to Sean Tackett's. Um, his the logic being that Tropy is the antidote to research entropy, um, and this is a tool that we're building with support from the Mellon Foundation, um, who have been very generous supporters of a lot of the work here at the centre, um, and it. it what we're looking to develop here is a tool to organise, describe and share the digital images that humanities researchers take in the context of their research. Um, and at one level this is kind of a very you know, a very selfish project. I mean, from the moment that I took a digital camera into an archive, I've needed a tool like this. Um, like a lot of people, my thousands upon thousands of digital research images are all carefully organised into folders, but otherwise completely unidentified um, and and difficult to use and difficult to keep track of and difficult to annotate. Um, and it's increasingly clear that as more and more people take digital cameras into archives and that's been helped a lot by libraries and archives um, developing policies to allow the uses of this technology. Um, that This really is a standard part of humanities research practice and uniformly people complain about their difficulties managing um, these images, particularly at the scale that we tend to take them. You know, on a good day in the archive, I can get over a thousand images, um, assuming that my body holds up, the technology does fine. Um, and that, that scale has just become increasingly clumsy um, to work with. So this is going to be an effort to provide a, a streamlined tool to let people organise that material, to attach metadata to it, um, and then to um, 
play with it in a variety of ways to tag it, to take notes. Um, we'll be building off of the kinds of things that, that we've worked with here around Zotero in the past, though this is this is going to be a different tool with a different kind of interface um, of the kind that, that maybe in another world we would be revising on Zotero as it stands. So this is intended to be streamlined. It's not intended to be um, a photo um, management and manipulation tool. That's what a lot of people have been using in its stead and and in the end that's fine if you want to adjust the zoom and crop your images it's no good for actually trying to work with what the content of those images is we'll put some very basic image manipulation tools in there but this is very much more about organizing and describing those images um, we're going to use a, a, a template model um, to allow people to um, attach all of the information on the provenance of the stuff in terms of archives um, customize those templates and we're hoping to work with a range of libraries and archives to develop templates for specific collections. Um, so this is primarily a tool for researchers, um, but it's also a tool built with an eye on, on the sheer scale of digitization that's going on in libraries and archives um, and literally walking out the door at the end of the day with the researchers. Um, so we're also looking to try and build some bridges between researchers and the um, archives and libraries in which they're working um, to try and open, some, open up some possibilities for what, for lack of a better term, we could call crowd digitization, um, where archives and libraries capture um, some of the digitization that's been done by researchers working with their collections. That is potentially item level metadata for a lot of collections where there is very little item meta level metadata in existence. Um, I was reading yeah. it story today about like this week about um, the Kenyan review and disappearing pieces of their archive and one of the reasons why that theft took so long to detect was that there was simply no item level description of those collections so people had no idea what was supposed to be there. Um, item level description is a huge challenge. Researchers tend to work at item level description um, yep. and so at least the metadata it's would be potentially of use to some collections for integration into their catalogues or similar kinds of tasks that maybe we don't even imagine. And then the images themselves may be um, of use to some people. And, and part of the reason we're focusing on, on archives themselves is to get around some of the rights and licensing issues which would go with the researchers thinking about sharing these images publicly. If we share them back to the institutions, then they tend to be the people in a position to know or decide what else they might be able to do with those. So so that's, that is the secondary part of it. This is a research tool that, that people want. Um, it's something that Sean and I have been working on basically since I arrived at the centre. We've um, we've run it by people here um, multiple times over the last couple of years as we developed it. So it's got the fingerprints of, of all of the folk here at the centre all over it at the moment. Um, we'll be certainly reaching out to a lot more people to try and make certain that we're building a tool that fits their research workflows and their research needs, but it's already got um, the tastes of a range of people here. Um, built into it. We'll be reaching out to some library and archive partners to get their input, to get a sense of what their readers are doing, to get a sense of what would be useful um, for them as well. So this is, this is, this is, you know, it's it's a a great opportunity to do something where there, where we kind of have no doubt that that there is a strong need and demand for this. Um, that every time we 
we bring it up, people want it for their next research trip. Um, and they're going to have to wait a little bit longer than that. But this is, I think, um, really of a piece in some ways with the broader research infrastructure that the centre's built with Zotero um, and even with Ameca. And we're going to, this is a tool where you're going to be able to pull your, pull your images and metadata out into Ameca um, and into a variety of other um, digital asset management systems. So we're looking at building an API on this as well. It's not intended, obviously, to be a place where your stuff gets stuck. So, so really, yeah, we're hoping that this is in some ways, again, a, um, a prompt for people to be able to think about doing more with the digitised research that they're doing um, and thinking about um, once they can actually organise it and manipulate it and describe it properly, then they're in a position to consider other kinds of digital humanities tools as well. So yeah. thank you, Mellon Foundation. This is this is a, a really um, exciting um, project. So Stephen, uh, not to get, get personal, but um, you, of course, took over from Dan Cohen, the other member of this podcast right now, as director of the Centre for History and New Media. Is this the first... Uh, major grants, particularly software development grant, that you have yourself written and uh, won since you have um, taken RRCHM into its new era. Yeah, I mean this is yeah this is the second grant with my name on it since we've got here. The other one is is an NEH um, summer workshop for teachers. So I'm kind of spread across the centre here. But yes, absolutely. And look, and this is Sean and I. We've been working on this. Um, together since I got here and and again it's a, it's our sort of first new melon project since Dan left as well which I think is, is a really important for the center um, we're in an environment increasingly where private funders like um, the Mellon Foundation and the Sloan Foundation are, are increasingly important parts of the center so it's a hugely important grant for us to continue that relationship with Mellon um, and the scholarly communications program um, that Dan and Tom built up over the last few years so well, I'm, I'm I'm sure that uh, being in residence at the center will uh, do nothing but uh, polish your grant writing skills. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Dan can probably speak to that. And uh, I think it's great that you are um, continuing Dan good, Dan's good work and uh, creating a legacy of your own, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, congratulations, Stephen. That's really great. Mm -hmm. And I'm That's looking great. forward to, to seeing these tools. No, and I think you're right. I think that is a much needed tool. Uh, I mean, I think from... Um, from the perspective of archives, they're always kind of talking about how do we sort of create a workflow whereby we can acquire the photographs that researchers take and they sort of, you know, hack together a number of things and probably a lot of it is done by email and sort of person to person. But I think that um, if in particular there were a tool, uh, an easy way to ingest um, those kinds of, even if they're sort of fairly crummy pictures taken with your phone described in fairly okay metadata, I think some places would be would be eager to to acquire those. Yeah, and our hope really with the template is that we can yeah we can create a reasonable standard for that for that metadata in, in a variety of ways. And and again, you know, the certainly National Archives has been has been going down this road um, quite quite determinedly and through their last strategic plans and I noticed in the last week or so they've just opened up what I think they're calling their innovation hub, which is offering researchers the opportunity to go down um, and scan their documents in, um, in this particular part of National Archives and 
walk away with their copy and, and allow National Archives to capture that. And and they have they've been looking around for a variety of other ways to capture what researchers have been doing. So I, I think this comes at an opportune moment where where it's obvious to everybody that this this material is out there and there are a range of possible things that we can do with it. I think the scary thing actually is that images taken on our phones these days tend to be actually really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is Tropy in its first instance is not built for mobile platforms, but I think that that is fairly, you know, high on our lists of things that we would like to build off off the basic um, desktop version because I think that more and more people don't need to take anything more than their camera into an archive to take a high quality photograph. The cameras on the new iPhones are, are terrifyingly good in some ways compared to the, the very, very expensive camera that I took on my first few research trips. Well, great. That's great to hear about. Um, I think we're uh, about to wrap up another ver another edition of Digital Campus. Uh, thanks, Dan and Stephen. Always good to talk to you. And uh, to our audience, if any, we will see you on another episode of Digital Campus. The only thing we have to fear Please visit us online at digitalcampus.tv, where you can join in the discussion and let us know about stories and issues you would like us to cover on future episodes. Mike O'Malley wrote our theme music. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you...